Welcome to season two of Cold Case MHS. Wrong time, wrong place, mistakes. Where real education meets real life. I am your host, Randy Hubbard, and the instructor of Cold Case MHS, and we thank you for listening. Mistakes. We all make mistakes in life, like spending too much money when you probably shouldn't, or you drive 65 in a 25 mile an hour zone, but you don't get caught. Even as a kid, when your mom told you not to answer the door for strangers, but you did it anyways. Well, those mistakes didn't ruin your life, even though they could have. But what happens when you make that mistake of answering the door to someone you thought you knew? At least you thought you knew them on the outside, but you didn't know what was ruined on the inside. It could be that mistake that ends your life. The door opens, conversation begins, and then chaos. All of a sudden now you're fighting, you're struggling, and you realize you have to fight back to save your life. And then it goes dark. Welcome to Cold Case MHS. Thanks for joining us. First thing I'd like to do is thank our guests today, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Riley. I'm Jenna. I'm Gabby. I'm Carly. I'm Lily. What about the snow day last week? You guys enjoy that? What? I wasn't here actually, I was in Florida. I was in Florida. Exactly, you guys in Florida suck. Our discussion today is the case of Alicia Monet Jackson from Columbus, Ohio. From working with this group, I found out that Alicia was a very beautiful 25-year-old mother that was working and going to school to create a better life for her and her two-year-old son, Jeremiah, or Juju, as she called them. Tell us a little bit about Alicia. Yeah, so from talking with friends and family, we found out a lot about her life when she was younger. She's a very friendly person, a very faith-driven, and she was involved in her school a lot with a bunch of extracurriculars, and she was on the honor roll, and she's even voted homecoming queen her senior year. So from that, we can definitely tell she was liked by a lot of people. She had a lot of friends and really smart academically as well. And another thing we learned from talking with friends and family is that she was someone who was super outgoing and super friendly and was always wanting to be like the bigger person and she's very forgiving. When you began to research the cases, why did you pick this one? I think one of the main reasons we picked it is because since she was a student at OSU, it was like a case that was closer to us because I know Carly has a sister that goes to college at OSU and Lily has a brother that went to OSU and so with that connection it just kind of made it even stronger for us to pick it. I also think a lot of the reasons why I was super interested in Alicia's case was because after reading articles we found out that Alicia's two-year-old son Jeremiah had been left unharmed in a high chair, which I thought was really interesting since I guess he kind of witnessed the whole thing. For those of you not familiar with Columbus, Ohio, it is the largest city in the state. Nearly one million people live there. It is home to the Ohio State University, the home of the Buckeyes, 
where you're gonna get an OH and a quick response of IO anytime you walk down the street. Columbus is also known for its large companies and is home to the world's greatest medical facilities. But like all towns, big and small, Columbus has its dark stories hidden in those crowds. Tell us a little bit about that night. So the night of December 2nd, 2010, Alicia left work early to go pick up her son from the babysitters. She arrived home around 5.30. She got a text from her mom around 5.53, which she answered. But then after that, she never answered a text again. And it was really unlike her to not answer her mother's text, especially. We know that she started to cook dinner because when the police arrived at the scene, there was still uh, water boiling on the stove and meatloaf in the oven. Eugene, her fiance, arrived home around 9 o'clock and immediately called 911 after he walked in to seeing Alicia dead on the couch. He called 911 and police arrived around 9.20. That particular night, what was it like outside at that time? Oh, um, I think it was 30 the degrees. Day. Yeah, it was like pretty cold since it was in the middle of December and the night before it had snowed all day and then on December 2nd, I don't think there was any precipitation, but then the next day it snowed all over again. So did the snow come after they went into the crime scene to search it, or was that before? Sorry. There was snow before there and after on that day, but, but like on that day, like on December 2nd, there was no snow. Okay. So but there was probably still snow on the ground. Yeah. So then when they came in to look at the crime scene, it hadn't snowed again yet. Okay. It would have the next Okay. But okay. They, they were there at the crime scene for a couple of days to search it. To search the crime scene. Mm -hmm. Okay. The reason I asked that question was during their research, the girls found that footprints were mentioned going outside the back door heading to the east. Now, we don't know if those footprints were left in snow, whether they left in blood, or were the police able to eliminate those as viable evidence. As we continue to talk, though, you'll hear how the killer used some forensic countermeasures to avoid capture. Were those footprints their mistake? Only the killer knows. So when you started looking into this case, what were some of the places you went to get your information? Who did you talk to along the way? I think the first thing we did when, with researching this case was we just researched like Alicia Monet Jackson on Google and we read through a bunch of articles and I think we went through five or six different articles and one name that kept popping up was Detective Eppert and he was the lead detective on the case so he was the first person we contacted. Well actually he contacted us first so we found his LinkedIn after like doing research on him and we viewed his profile and I guess it gives them a notification and so he actually reached out to Jenna and Carly and said hey have you, I recognize that you guys viewed my profile I was wondering what your interest was with it with me and we just kind of reached out basically telling him that we were looking into the case that he was a lead detective on 10 years ago and we wanted to get some like more information on that and then so we did some communicating back and forth and he was able to schedule a phone call with us like a week or two later and we just kind of asked him the details of the crime scene, more about like Alicia and the family members who were involved at the time, and just kind of clarify any confusion that we had about the case. As you sit and listen to your students talk to some of these experts, such as Detective Eppert, you get excited when they embrace the fact that this is for educational purposes. In this case, Mr. Eppert does this with our students when he talks about the murder of Alicia and what the crime scene looked like, and he asked the students what they believe. I, I think, didn't one of the articles 
articles, excuse me, did one of the articles uh, indicate how many times she was stabbed? Yes, we did, did we see just, that. What, what was that number? Um, we saw one article that said over a, two dozen and then another one that said over 30. Right. What's that tell you guys? That it was very personal, very personal, very like hate driven. Right. There's a lot of anger. Which would usually indicate... That she knew the killer. Right. All murders are unique in some form, but they are very similar in others. In all cases, especially if the victim is murdered in their home, there's going to be some trauma to the family and friends of that victim. In Alicia's case, little Jeremiah, at the age of two, sees what happens to his mother. Her fiancé comes home and finds her brutally murdered in her apartment. Now, it's common knowledge that those closest to the victim must be looked at first and eliminated before they move on to others. So the fiancé and his brother were cleared as suspects. Uh, You know, one through running the alibi down, both of them took polygraphs. One thing that gets me in this whole case was Juju. That poor little guy had to sit in his high chair and watch this happen to his mother. My only hope is that he doesn't remember anything from that horrific night. But yet, like Detective Eppert says, what can he tell us? Five minutes, that's all I want. Mm-hmm. All I want to do is say, do you know who hurt your mommy? Yeah. And what the family, well, what the attorney was afraid of was that the kid might say the fiance. Okay, yeah. And I said, I'm already running his alibi down. That's not who's in the crosshairs. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. And I told the attorney, I said, you know, I know I can't use a two-year-old statement in court, but what I could do is get that info that might help confirm or deny the path I'm following. Well, one thing I know that he mentioned to you is that he couldn't give you everything. Yeah. And we know that researching these cases the way we are, that we can't give certain information out. So as our listeners listen to that, realize that we only are giving you what we can find and what we're allowed to tell you. We can't necessarily give all the details. And in this case, Mr. Eppert didn't give you all the details anyways. So what were some other people you talked to? So kind of going off of what Riley said, since we couldn't get all of the information, we went onto the social media platform, Facebook, and we just started looking through Alicia's old Facebook and just seeing common names that popped up on pictures that have commented in the past or like liked her pictures and things like that so one name that came up a lot was Jermaine Anderson so we contacted him in the middle of November around the 17th and then we were actually able to have a phone call with him on the 19th he just clarified with us that Alicia had a super big heart she didn't really hold grudges she would welcome anyone inside of her home things like that so they met in Arkansas in sixth grade in high school they actually took each other to prom Jermaine sought to believe that Alicia was on the verge of splitting up with Eugene. Alicia, she's not a person to show people when she's going through something. She always had a smile on her face. She always was happy, always uplifted. And she would never let people know she was going through things. But we knew what was going on. And then he gave us a lot of other information, but for the sake of protecting others, we cannot share that at this time. What other leads did you follow, or who did you talk to? We talked to a few of Alicia's family members and a couple close friends, but at this time they wanted to keep their information private so we can't really speak about them. Another person that we talked to was Rebecca Weber, 
and we had contacted her through I think we found her Instagram and Jermaine actually no Jermaine had mentioned that a person we could talk to was Rebecca and I found her Instagram and I was DMing her back and forth and she agreed to have a phone call with us and one of the main things that she mentioned to us was just kind of a lot about who Alicia was and her personality and one of the most important things was that she had found Alicia's journal when she was going through Alicia's house. In the journal it talked about a lot about she was like thankful for her relationships and her son and she wrote a lot about God in the journal and how she just put a lot of her prayers in there and one of the main things that shows is just she's such, such a forgiving person and she's willing to look past some trouble she had with people and she writes them in her journal saying that she's thankful for them even if they've caused her troubles or anything it shows the type of person that she was I know you guys did a FOIA request. First thing, can you explain what a FOIA request is? And secondly, what were the ones that you received and what was the most important one you got? FOIA request was where we just kind of went onto the Columbus Dispatch website and we basically requested any records, such as like autopsy reports, coroner's reports, and toxicology reports, just requesting if we could have access to them and or like the 911 call. We did FOIA request the 911 call and they, I think after two years, they delete the 911 call. So at that time we weren't able to get that, but they did give us access to the autopsy coroners and toxicology reports. And I think the most important one for us was the autopsy report because one of the major things that stuck out to us was Alicia had numerous bloodless stab wounds to her head, which meaning she was, she was stabbed post-mortem. So after the fact that she had died, that kind of mean, leads us to the fact that it was overkill and making the case personal between the suspect and Alicia. What was the manner of death? Homicide. It was homicide. What was the cause of death? The, her carotid artery was stabbed, so she had bled out. Do you know what the common carotid is? It's an it's a artery from your heart to your brain. Okay. <laughs> is that right? That is correct. Okay. <laughs> so, so that tells you that it's a major... It's a, it's a major artery going to the brains. The one thing about that particular wound was that it was very what? Deep, deep. deep. That one was deep. Most of the wounds were yeah, shallow. Most of those were shallow. The one that, was, that caused the, the death was really deep. Matter of fact, it was so deep, it actually went and left a mark on her spine. Pretty deep cut. That does show that somebody has enough strength to do that, but yet we're going to talk more about profiling and using the autopsy reports to profile what type of person might commit this crime and there were some other types of injuries that kind of lead us in that direction. So first thing, tell us a little bit about what is profiling and what are some things you look at to profile a case. To make a profile of a suspect you want to look at the crime scene and the victim all together in order to kind of predict what type of person would commit a crime like that. You look at the evidence left on the crime scene, how the murder took place and kind of the victimology of the person to see who would have the motive to do something. What did we find from the crime scene, from the autopsy report, and from Alicia's background that could help us profile this particular case? So a couple things we got from the crime scene was that it was just very clean evidence-wise. There was not a lot of prints left behind, even though there was blood everywhere, and we assumed that Alicia put up a fight. That just sort of tells us that they might have some sort of forensic evidence background. 
One of the things that we did learn from Steve Epper, his professional opinion was that he believed it was a woman who did it. He thinks that the child being left on harm was an act of motherly nature, and he also thinks that the, the person who did this was someone from Alicia's fiance's past. And really what led us to believe it was a female was just, uh, I guess, the relationships and just where the facts were pointless. Yeah. Um, and I think in the, the last article I did, I think we said it was a female from the fiancé's past. And another thing going off of them thinking it's a woman was when we looked at the autopsy report, a lot of the wounds were shallow, which factually men tend to be stronger than women sometimes when it comes to that. And when you're looking at the wounds, they're shallow. We kind of just made the assumption that it could have been a woman since they were not as deep as they usually would be. And you mentioned that this person had some kind of forensic knowledge of some sort. What were some things that they did to not leave forensic evidence behind? We believe that they took her personal belongings, such as her laptop and her phone and stuff like that, to get rid of any tracing or any information that could have been on her laptop. We believe that the with them taking the laptops and her phone, Detective Epper believes that it was like a lame attempt at framing a robbery kind of situation rather than just a murder. That was one theory. Another theory we had was maybe the person who came to Alicia's house had texted Alicia or called her to plan a time of meeting, and there was evidence of that on there, so she took that with her. There was a lot of blood found in the bathroom, and we believe that the suspect might have went to the bathroom to clean up, because we know that Alicia was killed on the couch and not moved, so we know that that might not have been her that was trying to clean up, so we think that it was a suspect. So in order to kind of understand everything that we're talking about about the crime scene, I think it's important to point out what her home looked like. So she and Eugene lived in just kind of your average townhouse. I believe it was two bedrooms with two bathrooms. Again, one of the bathrooms being left on the main floor, kind of like what Gabby said about her cleaning up in the bathroom. As far as the crime scene goes, it is described to us that there was blood everywhere from the ceiling to the floor to the walls. So Rebecca, who described Alicia to us earlier, was one of the first ones to see the crime scene after the police were finished. Rebecca and some of her friends actually had to go in and clean up the crime scene. And this is what they said they saw. It was just like the coffee table and stuff was in disarray. But for me, it was really all the blood splatter um, that just made it seem like it was like it was wild. Yeah, there, there was literally blood everywhere. I mean, it's definitely it was overkill. definitely overkill. Yeah, definitely very much rage. Personal, yeah. Personal. yeah, yeah. And so um, it's just, it just was like so, the problem is I don't know necessarily what the, what was the police in terms of coming in there. Yeah. Um, and, but it, everything was just in disarray and that, that wasn't Alicia at all. Mm -hmm. That being said, nothing was harmed. So we've seen pictures of her townhouse before and there was a fish tank that wasn't touched. It was still in its normal place. Things like the TV were still there and nothing like a forced entry, so it is believed that Alicia let in the suspect. We look at all the evidence and what we do know. We look at Eppert's idea of the person that possibly could do that. Do you think that anywhere down the road somebody will say something or somebody will find 
that piece of evidence that's going to change this case? I think since it's been 10 years, 11 years since the case, I think it's a slim chance of someone speaking up and saying something. With the lack of evidence that was found at the crime scene, there, I feel like it's going to be harder for us to find evidence or at least to find any new evidence. I feel like if we get the story out there though, that the word might spread around more and more and someone who hasn't heard of the case before has heard it before and might be in contact with who the suspect is and might lead us to finding more information. I think maybe there is a possibility that anybody who is in contact with the suspect or is like friends with them might think that it's really not a big deal anymore because it happened 10 years ago. They might think that it's kind of just over. But we did recently have a People Magazine interview and I think that coming out and especially how big of a platform it is, maybe someone who knows something will see it and realize that it is still an active case and maybe they will reach out. And I'm really hoping that that will give us something in the near future. And I know with all those things put together, there were some people close to Alicia who were involved in some divorces. So hoping that, you know, they confided in their spouses with some of the information, that that divorce may lead them to come out with something that will help us push this case forward. Now, one of the things that you just mentioned is the People Magazine article. We did have some other people that talked to us that decided they didn't want their names and information put out there. One thing is they felt like podcasts are used for entertainment or exploiting somebody. I don't feel that way about ours, and I was wondering if you could describe what you think our podcast is really trying to do. I think our podcast just kind of bring, like we said earlier, kind of brings light to cases that many people don't know of. Before this class, I hadn't heard of any of these cases that people are researching, but after taking it and listening to different podcasts and doing research, talking with other groups, it brings light to cases and kind of just lets people know that people are doing something about it, even when it feels like nothing's happening. I also think that there are a lot of crime documentaries that are, are for entertainment and they're all in big cities, LA and New York, and you don't really, most of the groups in our class picked something close to home in our small, our small town in Ohio. You don't really think that it's happening everywhere and it is, and I feel like it's important. We feel like we're just bringing light to the people who didn't get as much mm-hmm. attention as they deserved. And we hope that the listeners will listen to that too because we don't make money off of this. We're not doing this for fame and fortune and all that kind of stuff. We're doing this for a lot of reasons. And one is to get the stories back out. But the other thing that is important to me, being an instructor, is the skills gained over these last two semesters. If you could describe a little bit about what you've learned about your skills that you can use later in life and maybe things you do learn about yourself along the way and tell us how this is going to benefit you down the road. Yeah, so I think that I definitely always had a passion for doing this type of stuff growing up, and taking this case has really made me know that I want to do this for the rest of my life. It's also really helped all of us with our communication skills, talking to people's family, and really getting the personality of the victim that we're researching. It really just showed us a new skill that we didn't know we had. For me, it's definitely helped with patience. You know, when you watch TV shows, everything comes back in five minutes and they get all the answers super quickly. And that's not how it is in real life. So having to wait two weeks 
three weeks, four weeks to a month. It's it's definitely helped with my patients and learning that it doesn't just get solved overnight. You have to actually do the work and research and it takes, it, it is a lot of work. So it definitely helped open my eyes to that and I definitely will be able to take that throughout my life. I'm kind of going off what Jenna said. I think it helped all of us work on our problem solving skills. You know, like you aren't just always given the answers or you're not always given names of people or where people live or their phone numbers or like ways to get a hold of them and it's just something that you have to work through with your group and kind of like work together as a team and like not get frustrated with each other but like learn how to um, work with each other and like use each of your guys' skills. Yeah, I also think that with us doing this, it brought us closer with each other. We think that we we have been so proud of ourselves with all the work that we've done and it just we, it really just showed us how much we could do that we might we didn't think that we could in the first place. But it showed us like how much skill and how much talent and how much work that we can really put into something. The one thing about this group that you guys can't see that I do is that they are very outgoing. Um, <laughs> they're very excited about what they do, and it's kind of fun to watch them in their phone calls and things like that when they find something new. You know, you have one of them dancing behind the other one. <laughs> they're excited about it. Um, other ones, you know, punching the other one in the arm. <laughs> so it's fun to watch this group work. Um, when they first got started with it, I didn't know where this case was going to take them, and this group has done a great job of not only working with each other, but talking to the people that they've interviewed, including experts like Detective App. I think that's very important for their skills and for them going down the road. I'm very proud of this group. They were even able to get recognition from national publication, People Magazine, and that's something that I think is important for classes down the road, because if we can get other people to see what we're trying to do, that maybe police departments will put a little faith into us. We can review cases that they can't anymore and maybe give us an opportunity to show what we can do. So I appreciate all you guys and what you've done. Do you guys have any other last thoughts about Alicia and her case and her family or anything of that nature? I think just the last thing our group wanted to say was thank you to everyone that like we talked to or was willing to give their time to talk to us, whether it was a phone call or even just exchanging emails, it really means a lot to this group, to the case. Um, every step is important to us and just the fact that you were willing to like put your time into it to help us, even though like if like we weren't allowed to or if you didn't want like your name or information added to this, um, we really appreciate it still. And one thing that we would like to also say is please, if you have any information about Alicia's case, any details that you could possibly give the police please call the Columbus Police Department and ask for Detective Gillette at 614-645-4036 or email him at wgillette at columbuspolice.org. If you're not comfortable giving that information to the police, give it to us and we can pass it on. You can reach us at coldcase at masonohioschools.com or at any of our social media outlets. We do have Instagram and Twitter, and I will put that information on our show notes that are attached to this podcast. I want to say thank you to our guests today and for all their hard work. I also want to thank Melissa Morgan from Just the Tipsters podcast for helping me with this podcast and for introducing me to people that will really help my class down the road. I want to also mention Kristen Metalman from Authram Inc. 
Authram's labs are creating a groundbreaking technology in DNA testing and finding DNA where it was once thought there wasn't any. We're going to try to spread the word about Authram Inc. to police departments with unsolved cases still on their books. And I hope that one day they will use these labs and new technology to bring justice to their victims. Thank you to Kristen Pelisek and Katie Green from People Magazine for reaching out to us. Thank you to my student producer and podcast room creator, Montez. The artwork for this podcast was created by former student Emma Holbert. Some of the music in this podcast was created by Purple Planet Music. And the theme song was written and performed by a former student, Jenna Brandt, and produced by Noria. This song and all of Jenna's music can be heard on all music streaming apps. Thank you for listening to Cold Case MHS, Episode 1, Mistakes. Tune in to Episode 2, Vanished into Thin Air, the tragic story of Bobby Lee Wells. February 13, 1980. The luggage of one Bobby Lee Wells arrived in Birmingham, Alabama, but there was no trace of Bobby. Wrong time, wrong place, mistakes. Cold case, now a chase, no breaks. Unsafe is the faith in the faith. It's a cold case, it's a cold, cold case. You're as sick as your secrets, and a lie can't conceal it. So deep, sinking, stuck overthinking. Here to inform you that your fantasy is over. Won't close on your torture, no. Feel eyes on you. Feel eyes on